Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agilerabbit.com. Here is Professor Steve Simpson talking about underwater sound at Exeter Phoenix, January 2018. Um, OK, so obviously it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you today about underwater noise, which probably until Blue Planet came along, you might not all have raced to go and hear a talk on underwater noise. And so hopefully through the talk I'll explain how it's been quite a privilege to be able to add an acoustic element to what is clearly a, a stunning and a real a groundbreaking series. I'm a lecturer in biosciences here at the University of Exeter. Um, I'm also involved in shaping the Global Systems Institute, which is going to be hopefully an opportunity that brings anybody from the region together to be able to tackle some of the big issues that we face. It's going to be exciting within the university for us to be working across different institutions, but also to be able to then engage in a really uh, continuous and um, fruitful way with society, with schools, um, with other organisations through the region. So I want to talk about underwater sound in the series, but also more generally, and this will be a very global talk because a lot of the work that we do is all over the world. 60 years ago, 61 years now, Jacques Cousteau had presented to the world the first really incredible underwater film. So this was 19, sorry, 1956, so 62 years ago, Le Monde de Silence, really the first underwater documentary that took everybody around the world under the waves. One thing that Jacques Cousteau was convinced about was that this was a silent world compared to on land where you've got birdsong and you've got human cities and traffic and all sorts. Underwater, it was a silent world. But unfortunately, that was probably his interpretation based on the fact that he was quite regularly blowing his eardrums because he had no idea about what ascent rates needed to be to protect your ears. He also had dive equipment that was uh, really just made from what they could scrounge from uh, fire stations, from the breathing apparatus. Uh, and often they then had these enormous underwater scooters that they could drive around and get pulled around. So this was amazing adventuring, but it led us to believe for many decades that the oceans were silent. But if you go snorkeling, uh, particularly in a tropical coral reef environment, you know that's not true. So the big difference with snorkeling is that you've not got the sound of your own bubbles. So you start to feel the sounds underwater. And so we now realise that it's an ocean of noise. Now, so after my undergraduate, I went to do a master's, which involved... I was now getting quite obsessed about these little centimetre-long fish. So I went off to the Caribbean, to the British Virgin Islands, where I ended up building, out of junk material, traps that I could uh, hang a, a bright light inside. And those bright lights were really attractive to our little fish. So by putting these out off the edge of the reef, we could start to see the fish arriving, and they'd swim into our traps, all built from old buckets and Coca-Cola bottles. There was a lot of rum and Coke that was needed. The rum was really just to hide the taste of the Coke. But it meant that we were able to build these underwater light traps that attracted all of our fish, so we could monitor the arrival of fish, which meant that we could then advise the fishery as to how, how strong that year class would be in two or three years' time when they started catching those fish. 
Now, I then went off to work in Belize after my master's, before, before my PhD, worked in Belize and spent four months or so uh, living in a hammock on the beach. We basically lived in these hammocks, went out onto the reef every day, and we were surveying the coral reefs to try and understand the effect of mud coming out of the rivers around the orange and other citrus plantations to try and advise the government on how to control sedimentation on the coral reefs. But by doing this, we were going out and we were listening to the reefs day in, day out. And this richness of the underwater soundscape started to really resonate um, in, in me personally, but also in the conversations that I was having with those I was working with. So I thought, well, it obviously isn't a silent world. Has anyone been thinking about underwater noise? As you start to dig into it, you find out, of course, they have. So this is Lake Geneva in 1920, where there's an amazing experiment to see this to calculate the speed of sound underwater compared to in air. So it involves somebody up here both firing a gun and also hammering a bell underwater. And then this poor guy trying not to be shot, <laughs> taking a, listening through a, a huge trumpet for the arrival of the sound of the bell relative to the bang of the gun. In 1826 on Lake Geneva, they realized uh, first of all, that sound travelled very fast underwater, but also when they calculated the arri time of arrival, they realised that sound travelled five times faster, nearly five times faster underwater than it does in air. So in air, if you were two miles away from a building site, you wouldn't hear it, would you? And yet there might be all sorts of hammering and smashing around and big diggers driving around. Underwater, you could be hundreds of kilometres away from a construction site and you would hear it like it was right next to you. And that's because uh, water is very dense. There's a lot of water molecules that can transfer that acoustic energy between the source and the receiver. Whereas up in the air, you would see the building site for two kilometers, no problem, but you wouldn't hear it. Underwater, you can only see about 20 yards because the water's in the way. But in air, there's nothing in the way, so you see long distances, but you can't hear long distances. So it made us start to think, well, could noise be important when we think about our little fish trying to find their way home? And luckily for us, about exactly the time that I was starting to have these, um, these ideas, the navies around the world were declassifying some of their wartime recordings, which were mainly taken with sonoboys, so they dropped these acoustic recording devices out of planes, they'd land on the ocean surface, they'd drop down to a certain depth, they would then start recording with a radio transmitter, they'd transmit what they can hear, and then after a few hours, the balloon would burn itself out and the thing would sink to the seabed. And by dropping hundreds of these out of aeroplanes, they could listen for submarines and they could listen for torpedoes. Now to the Navy, there was a real problem because sometimes they couldn't get past all this biological noise to get to the submarines and torpedoes. And that's because underwater animals are very noisy. They use sound to communicate. And they use this sound for a whole, a whole raft of reasons. They use sound to attract each other, so to attract a mate, to attract a shoremate, to communicate with each other. They use sound to find food. They use sound to avoid being eaten. They use sound to find habitat. And so acoustic um, underwater are really important. And if we listen to the, some of those sounds, here's an example of, of a, a whale.
evocative song of a humpback whale. We've then got fish that produce uh, a whole range of sounds. We've got uh, invertebrates. The lobster can play its antennae like a fiddle. The urchins scrape away at the rocks. Uh, one of the most dominant sounds in uh, tropical and even now on the south coast of the UK uh, waters the snapping shrimp that can force a bubble forwards out of its claw tip at such a speed that the bubble implodes in the water, creating a bright flash and a loud bang. And they do this as a way of communicating underwater. So if I take a recording on a coral reef, this is what it sounds like. So intrigued by all of this idea that sound is diverse, it's coming from a whole range of biological sources, uh, but also that fish are somehow finding their way back to specific habitats. Um, I then was very lucky to work at Lizard Island, and I've spent over a year of my life there now, um, working on projects to try and understand how this is important. So here's a simple experiment I started with, which just used light traps, either with speakers playing back recordings of coral reefs, or with light traps with speakers playing no sound sound we suddenly realised was really attractive to these larval fish at the time that they would come onto a reef. We then built uh, patch reefs, little coral reefs, out on the sand flats and then sonified some of those with our recordings and found that we could call fish in to settle onto these reefs. So we, we were able to manage the arrival of fish into particular habitats. And this was something that David Attenborough um, picked up on in his Great Barrier Reef series uh, three years ago now. And it was really quite wonderful to spend a day explaining all of this to David Attenborough, uh, first of all, because he wanted to put it into his series. So I spent about six months working with his production company on the script for what we were going to do with this. And he arrived on the island and he turned up and he said, so where's Simpson then? I came up and I said, hi, it's me. And he said, oh, well, I've been given this script, to be honest, I don't think very much of it. Let's go for lunch. And we sat under a sat and I, I denied all knowledge of it. <coughs> we sat next to a coconut tree and we rewrote the script. And it was, it was amazing. So he was 87 or so. Um, he said, so um, uh, what do we need to say? So I said, well, you want to say that coral reefs are quite noisy places. Coral reefs are remarkably noisy places. And then, but hang on a minute. How do you know that? And he just, every single line, wanted to find out the science behind it. He wanted papers that had been peer-reviewed that demonstrated every single line that he was willing to say. So it was a level of rigour that was quite phenomenal. For, not, for, not for, I mean, obviously for any 87-year-old, that's impressive. But he clearly wasn't prepared to simply say something that someone told him at face value. Really wanted to know the, the facts behind it. So it was really quite magical to spend a day with him. He came and hung out with our research group. We were at the time playing with all sorts of model fish, and I'll talk about those a bit later. And then eventually, just as we were doing all the selfies and things, we realised that we were late for the final shoot, which was going to be David Attenborough appearing with enough of a glow on the horizon uh, that it would look really evocative. Um, so we had this light trap set up on the other, at the other end of the beach. This beach was about a kilometre and a half long. So poor David Attenborough, at age 87, wasn't about to wander all the way to the other end of the beach. My only solution to try and get him to be able to do this was to bundle him into an old uh, dune buggy that was, that was uh, kind of sat behind the dive shed, rotting away, which I managed to start with a screwdriver, and we then trundled up the beach driving this thing. 
he had my dive torch because it didn't have headlights and we were trying to pick our way through to get to the other side of the beach and I said to him, look, I'm so sorry, this is obviously a real pleasure to meet you. I didn't think that this was going to be the way that today was going to end up. And he looked at me and he said, this is more like it. <laughs> and he clearly just had that sense of adventure um, and so that was great fun. So, we've obviously taken a real interest in underwater sound around the world and a research group now that's about 15 strong with postdocs and PhD students and master's students and some undergraduates spend a lot of time taking recording devices around to different parts of the world, sometimes as glamorous as Swanwich or Kimmeridge Bay in Devon, sometimes at places like Oman or French Polynesia or various places. And the reason we've been doing this, this just shows the high-tech um, approaches that we've now been using. So this is the first research vessel I could ever afford, which allowed me to uh, sail my hydrophone out over very shallow water. So I could guide it with two bits of fishing line, and it would then go out over shallow water. Because if I walked over the reef, all the fish would scarp up. So I could then sail this thing out and take recordings. Um, I then went uh, slightly up market and got myself out to some of these coral reefs so I could sit in my rubber ring and take recordings. We then realised that it would be great to take whole nighttime, night-long recordings, which you definitely don't want to sit with only one part of your anatomy exposed to the potential sharks in a rubber ring overnight. So we then um, innovated the hydrosaur, which allowed us to be able to leave our recording gear out on the reef overnight. So uh, we... Um, uh, have been taking recordings uh, in various different places, coupling that with underwater um, video sensors and also with fish surveys to try and understand the links between what we hear and what we see. We're very visual uh, animals, so we tend naturally when we go and survey a coral reef to take a slate and to take a camera and to take a clipboard and write down what we see, but we do it all visually, so everything we know about coral reefs almost without fail is only the daytime part of the coral reef um, um, uh, experience. So we wanted to know, and obviously we've now been innovating our gear so we can listen with multi-directional hydrophones, we can use accelerometers that feel the vibrations of sound in the water in much the way that a crab or a, a starfish or a, a mussel might. And we've identified the fact that sound, reef sound characteristically different, they have their signature. Reef noise indicates habitats and fish communities and the fish can select even microhabitats that they would prefer to settle in using the sound. We've also realised that we can use a hydrophone a bit like a doctor might use a thermometer to assess the health of a habitat. So we've been now dropping hydrophones in a range of different environments to see how sound varies. So here's an example of three different sites all on the same island um, of Bohol in the central Philippines. And these were all recorded at the same level for comparison. So here we've got Balakasag, which is a uh, very well-established marine reserve, highly protected. It's one of the f most famous dive sites on the island. It's got lots of live coral. It's got a lot of fish swimming around. And if I take my recording, you can see that there is a lot of acoustic events, these spikes. There is sound that transcends all these frequencies, including these very intense white blobs, which are at low frequencies, and they seem to have some kind of pattern. So I'm going to play that um, and see if you can work out what the white blobs are. So you can hear the fish. Now those fish might not be visible. If you looked at that coral reef environment, you might never see the vocalising fish. But you can clearly hear it. 
over the background, which is generally the crackling sounds, which are the snapping shrimps. So that's what a healthy reef should sound like. Now, if we go to um, a, a much more recently established marine reserve, because it's not being fished, particularly with dynamite, which is obviously highly destructive, or with cyanide and crowbars, which again is very destructive, it means that the coral is growing back quite well. But what you see is that many of the fish, many of the big fish, are absent. And that's because this is a particularly small marine protected area, and on the outskirts of that, we call it fishing the line, are boat after boat fishing the fish that might accidentally stray over this imaginary line um, um, and out of the reserve. So if I take a similar recording, you can see that the low-frequency sounds are now much more absent, um, and there are less acoustic events. So this is now what this sounds like. And then if we go to a typical coral reef environment that was once probably a healthy coral reef in the Philippines, it's been heavily overfished, it's been destructively fished with dynamite. And if I take a recording here, at the same levels as the other two, you realise that it's almost silent. So for fish to recruit back to this environment and start to repopulate it, if acoustics are an important cue, they'd almost have to swim into it before they ever heard it. So it suggests that there's a negative feedback that you would get. Once you start to lose some of the noise-producing animals, then you would start to lose the recruits, the next generation arriving, and the whole thing tumbles down, spirals downwards. Right, so can you tell me what this is? What was that? Which, which whale? Humpback whale, well done, excellent. Now, can anyone tell me what this is? So that is the sound of a ship. What we now realise when we take recordings in many parts of the world is that what we're hoping to hear is biological noise. What we're actually hearing is what we call anthropogenic noise, noise that humans are adding to the ocean. Now, I'm not going to go into details, but much of the work that we're doing here in Exeter now focuses on both understanding and assessing impacts of underwater noise in the marine environment, but also working out ways to try and manage it, to reduce, mitigate the impacts of human noise. We've got a group that are in, on the Great Barrier Reef at the moment who are looking at the difference of the impact of two-stroke boat engines versus four-stroke boat engines. So we'd identified over the last few years that two-stroke boat engines, which really rattle, they're quite old, noisy engines, have a very strong negative effect on the physiology of fish. It scares them, it raises their stress levels, their ventilation rate goes up, their uptake of oxygen from the water goes up, um, their response to a, a predator strike goes down and their chance of mortality goes much higher. So you see about a three times increase in mortality from predation of these little fish while boats are driving around. But we're interested in whether we can make a difference and with four-stroke boat engines, many of those impacts go away. These engines hum rather than rattle and the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority are now considering outlawing two-stroke engines on the Great Barrier Reef. I've got a master's student at the moment who's been in uh, French Polynesia trying to unlock the language that these clownfish use with and without boats driving around. And I want to just explain to you where that, that uh, idea came from. So 
about four years ago, so I, I'm, I'm lucky to live in Bristol and to know some of the Blue Planet 2 crew, they called me in and they said, right, we've got this new series, we're going to try and make it. At the time it was called Oceans, it wasn't Blue Planet 2. Um, and that was because, I think initially, nobody dared to think you could do something as great and as important as Blue Planet 1. So there was a working title that was used that was really just, what could we do about the marine environment like we've been doing with Planet Earth, for example? And we sat down with blank pieces of paper and just tried to map out what, what episodes might do. What was really exciting to me as a scientist, and particularly working on human impacts, was that in the past, the um, natural history filmmakers might shy away from some of those slightly thornier issues because it really can divide an audience. And it was really obvious that the executive producer, the series producer, each episode producer was really willing to stick their necks on the line and say, no, we're going to tell it like it is. Because there was this final episode that they were going to include in the, the main series that was going to actually go back over some of what had been highlighted in the earlier episodes in terms of global warming, ocean acidification, overfishing, plastics, and so on, there was um, a, a real interest in bringing the fact that we were going to have a much stronger acoustic element to the series, uh, bringing that into the final episode. So how on earth could we turn all of the research that I've been telling you into something that might be uh, of interest to a viewer? So the first idea was that we should go somewhere nice, which seems to be their approach. And I tried to sell them Swanage. So they suggested Malaysian Borneo. Now, little did I know that I was also going to be a mule. So they then took me to Heathrow in a very large minibus, which seems strange before they then took me out into the terminal and they said, oh, by the way, we've got some of the equipment that we'd like you to take out with you. So with 33 pieces of excess luggage, <laughs> because you can't take the lithium batteries that go inside the cameras, you can't take, put those into the hold, you've got to have them in hand luggage. I had a 77 kilogram hand luggage roll along. <laughs> Nobody could lift it up into the overhead locker. No one would want to sit underneath it. We were also really keen to try and bring a, a richer acoustic element of the series to the viewer which meant rather than listening as you would do through a single hydrophone, which hears in all direction equally, we wanted to try and bring a bit of that richness of the underwater acoustic world to the uh, viewer. So, innovated with a German company, this uh, multi-directional hydrophone system that allowed us to listen in four directions at the same time. Then, now, they'd already been filming with these clownfish. They said it would be great if we could have a charismatic character that we'd work with. So they introduced me to these amazing clownfish, um, the ones that move the coconut shells, that live on the sand flats. The only thing that I brought out of the 33, um, 33 bags, which I thought would be worth a go, was Boris. Which, so when they were pulling out all this kind of hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of equipment, and I felt slightly <laughs> nervous about my great idea of pulling out a small trophy fish and a broom handle. But I was convinced that there would be some way that we could try and interact with these clownfish in a way that you couldn't do as a human. Um, and luckily for me, and now my research group, they entertained the idea because it worked a treat. You could really get your Boris right down amongst the reef. And fish would come and they would display against him. Well, I had one, one other coral trout that swam quite seductively alongside <laughs> Boris for a while. <laughs> At which point I was then thinking, right, okay, well, I'd better try and kind of signal back somehow. So I was putting this little wiggle in, and I suddenly thought, is this my, like, I don't want to be having these thoughts in my mind. <laughs> 
How do I become sexually attractive as a small puppet fish while swimming around on the surface? But I was also keen that we got an acoustic element into it, and so we were then able to spend some time actually engaging with the boat traffic in the area. The outcome of what the series has really uh, done it clearly is an enormous uh, effort in terms of over a thousand people working on it. I watched by now over a hundred million people. They anticipate half a billion people will watch it in total. Um, it sparked, obviously, uh, many, many conversations in people's living rooms, across dinner tables, in pubs, in classrooms. People are thinking and talking about the ocean in a way they never have done before. Now, I've only talked about sound. You could equally have talked about plastic, overfishing, global warming. And the series really brought a lot of those impacts, local present-day impacts and global future impacts first into people's living rooms, then people's minds, and now into people's hearts, I think, which is very profound, very exciting. And believe it or not, the politicians in Westminster are talking about being haunted by some of what they've seen on Blue Planet 2. But certainly they're realising that there is political gain to be making bold decisions about the environment moving forwards. And that's really because they gauge the fact that their voting public really do care. You know, we all care, and as a result, hopefully, they now realise that people will back them if they make bolder environmental pledges. So it was obviously um, uh, totally um, deserved that the series was given the Impact Award this week, and I just wanted to finish by um, giving the last few lines, uh, I won't impersonate him, but the last few lines of David Attenborough in the final episode, which I think there is no one else on this planet who could have delivered, looking down the lens at all of us in such a profound, uh, poignant way. So he says, we are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we are doing to the planet, and never before have we had the power to do something about that. Surely we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet, the future of humanity, and indeed all life on Earth, now depends on us. Thank you for listening. And the other question. Yeah, I'm really curious. Fish, quite clearly, they can get to the places which are important to them through hearing sound. Yeah. How on earth do they do it? For fish, their ears are in the back of their head, so they're bones that float in the back of the skull, and they're very close together. So some people said fish might be able to detect the direction that a sound is going in, because their ear bones vibrate, but because they vibrate backwards and forwards, they wouldn't know whether it was from that direction or from that direction. Now, what we now realise is that these ear bones have quite curious, complex shapes. So this bone floats in the head of the fish, and around it is a membrane that has loads of uh, millions of hair cells. And the hair cells, when the bone moves, get pushed upon, and it turns that information then into a neural signal. And the hair cell bundles are all now pointing in different directions, we realise, which allows the fish with each ear to get a different piece of information. That's one half of the story. The other thing that fish can do is to use their swim bladder. So fish have a balloon inside them that they use like a scuba diver would use to control their depth. And they can inflate it to go up and deflate it to go down. If you walk into a nightclub or into a concert venue and there's a loud bass, you feel it in your chest, it vibrates. And in the same way, the fish swim bladder resonates. Now, many fish then have a tiny tube that comes off the swim bladder and goes all the way to the ear. 
And so as the swim bladder resonates, that information is carried all the way to the ear, which then drives it in one direction or the other, and it gives fish directional hearing. Yeah, so I mean, it's quite remarkable how they have solved such a tricky problem. I was wondering what you thought about like the use of sea for tourism, so in terms of snorkeling or diving exhibitions, and do you think that's generally like a good thing, or would it be better if there is a protected area that you like restrict human access completely? Great question. Um, so what Blue Planet 2 does is take people into an environment they might never otherwise visit. You know, any of us will probably never go to the deepest parts of the ocean. What scuba diving and snorkeling does is give people a much stronger connection. So I would always advocate, not only because I love it, but because I really think that it gives people that, that stronger connection with the underwater world. I'd even say that public aquariums have an important role. I mean, one of my Australian colleagues once um, stuck his head above the parapet where we found that ocean acidification affected fish survival and came out with the line, every time you start a car, you kill a fish, which probably isn't directly true. But it made some people think, well, hang on a minute, because this car exhaust, the CO2, is changing the atmosphere, which is changing water chemistry, which is changing fish survival. So it brings those linkages much closer when, rather than talking about a fish, we're talking now about Percy, the tusk fish with the shell. You know, these are characters that now that people know and love and hopefully will make stronger decisions about. Probably the more tricky debate is because climate change is clearly one of the most worrying impacts in the marine environment, it still begs the question as to how much air travel we should be doing for fun. Personally, I think that that connection lasts forever. And so to go for a few trips in your life and go and see some of these real jewels in the world's oceans is going to change your behaviour or change how you think about consumerism and it will change how you think about voting and it will change how you think about what you eat and you know I think that's that's really valuable.